All right, what an honor it is to be here tonight. Last Sunday night, I preached. I preached for so long that I didn't think I was going to get invited back, but here I am, and I have a timer this time. So, start. Now, if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, then we'll continue in the Sermon on the Mount. The passage we'll look at today is the well-known passage on lust, and it is a heavy passage And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach this passage this week because it has served me so much personally. I'm a 25-year-old single male living in uh, 2018, and sexual purity has been a war. And over time, I have come to win more battles in this war by the grace of God, and that's called sanctification. And so I want you to catch on to the words war and battle here. Because our relationship with lust should be one of war, and the war needs to be fought. And I also believe that we cannot hear a sermon on lust too many times in this day and age. Because lust has so permeated the church that we are called to be God's people, and yet we are lusting like the world. We are called to be set apart, to be called, we're to be holy, but we are slacking in this area in many ways. And it's not just the church members who are sitting in the pews, but also many church leaders nowadays have fallen victim to adultery, and adultery always begins with a rampant lust problem. And so we are to engage in the war against lust if we are to be God's people. Uh, There's no getting around it, as we'll see. Um, Jesus makes it pretty clear in this passage. So my goal today is for us to be better equipped for the war on lust for the sake of your soul and for the sake of God's glory. So, let's start in chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, like any good Baptist sermon, this one's going to have three points, and they're all going to be alliterated. (laughs) So, the three points are, lust is deep, lust is deadly, and lust is defeatable. Point one, lust is deep. The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus sitting on a mountain and teaching the crowd of disciples that he's accumulated so far in his ministry. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is instituting a new kingdom law for his people. Jesus is the king, and he has come, and he is setting a new law, a new standard for his people, for the people that are going to be a part of his kingdom. And the people were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes which is what it says at the end of the sermon. And in Matthew 5.20, just before this passage, or not just before it, but before it, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He then goes on to show them how they are all guilty of sin. Even those who thought themselves to be righteous because they were so good at following the commandments outwardly. And so, we'll read in verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Commentator Kent Hughes says, It is very natural for those of us who are non-adulterers to feel smug and conceited. I haven't committed that sin. Jesus is speaking to the rest of you sinners, not to me. Listen up, you reprobates. But Jesus knows our hearts, and he is not buying it. Instead, he communicates a radically new standard of sexual purity. It is in continuity with the Old Testament, but it supersedes and completes it. So adultery is not simply an action on the outside, but an action on the inside as well, in the inward being, in the heart. It is an inward action because one of the qualities of being created in the image of God is having the ability to create things in our mind. We can, create, we can perform actions in our mind in the, in the form of creating. And we would call that an imagination. And you can take anything you've ever experienced and with it, create anything you want to in your mind. You can create a whole world in your mind and write about it like C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. You can imagine you were in a freak accident and gained superpowers. You can even imagine a world where everyone uses the Fairdale traffic circle correctly. <clears throat> Unfortunately, you can also imagine doing things with a woman or a man that should never, ever happen. Sin has corrupted our imaginations. We are made in the image of God, but we are corrupt images of God. We regularly create evil things in our minds, and dwelling on these things corrupts our minds even more. For example, I know I've done this plenty of times, and you probably have too. When you get in a confrontation with someone, you don't in the moment know exactly what to say. They might have caught you off guard. But then after that, you're thinking back on the moment, and you're like, man, I could have said this. I could have said that. I really would have had them. And then you start thinking about the future encounter with that person. You know, what could they possibly say to me? You start going through different scenarios in your mind of what that person could say to you, and you go ahead and prepare yourself for anything he could say to you. But at the same time, when you do that, you start to build up hate for that person. You start to dislike him because, him or her, because you start imagining things they could possibly say, and then in your mind, it's almost like they actually said that to you. You know, it's a possibility. And so, in the same way, lust can change the way you see someone. You can lust after a man or a woman and create these scenarios in your mind, create these things in your imagination, and the next time you see that person in real life, you actually see them differently. It starts corrupting your relationship with others. And this is hurting the way that we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. We start seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ differently because of the things we've done with them in our minds. And so... That's deep. And then lust is selfish as well. We exist for God's glory, and when we lust, we take God's glory and try to make it our own. That woman that you are lusting after is created for, for God's glory, created by God, and exists for God's glory and her husband's compliment. The man you're lusting after exists for God's glory and his wife's compliment. They're not created for you. It's not your wife, not your husband. They're not yours. They're not your compliment. And you're trying to make it yours. You're basically saying, I want your body for my pleasure, but I don't want you as a whole. That's animalistic. That's not godly. And so lust is below the surface. It is adultery within. It is deep. Second point, lust is deadly. So in verse 29, 
He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So is lust a big deal? You may think to yourself, everyone else is lusting. My friends, my peers, even my spiritual leaders have said that they struggle with lust. So it's fine if I do it, you know. We certainly have a way of comparing ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to the standard that God has set up. Instead of comparing ourselves to God. And so we need to understand that lust is sin and all sin is serious. It's serious enough to put Jesus on the cross to save you from it. Take out your eye or cut off your hand. That shows how serious lust is. And that's our problem. We don't take it very seriously. We've grown to treat it with some comfortability, which isn't a word. But isn't it nice not to feel convicted? And that's what keeps so many people from walking through the doors on Sunday morning, or these doors particularly. And that's also why many churches around the world have large attendance. Because many churches have stopped convicting people of their sins. But we see that Jesus talks in a convicting way. He convicts people because that's how serious it is. He needs to convict people. Tell me what would you do if you found out you had gangrene in your foot? Would you say, no big deal, hit the bed, you'll sleep it off, you'll get better the next morning? No. If you have gangrene in your foot, you need to seek medical attention immediately because if you don't, you'll end up dying. You're probably going to need to get it amputated, cut off. In the same way, if you ignore lust, you will die in a more significant death, the death eternal. And you may say, but Robbie, are you saying that I can lose my salvation if I continue to give in to lust? That's kind of what it sounds like Jesus is saying here when he says, cut it off or you're going to go to hell. But I want you to know that I do not believe you can lose your salvation, but I believe salvation is through faith, and the faith that brings salvation also battles sin. Like I said, I'm still battling lust, and I always will. But the key word here is battling. Your active fight in the war on lust is evidence of your faith. And just like any sin, battling sin shows your faith. And so complacency would be evidence of lostness. Complacency says that you're dead if you're not fighting your sin. Kent Hughes says, Jesus is telling us that anything that stands between us and him must be ruthlessly, even savagely, torn out or cut off and thrown away. Drastic measures are always appropriate in order to protect one's spiritual health. So what are some of the measures we must take in order to protect our spiritual health? What are the drastic measures? And there are measures you can take, and I want you to know in my third point that lust is defeatable. We don't have to to go on thinking that lust is just something that I can't fight, you know, I can't really overcome. I want you to know that you can. And it's defeatable in four ways that I argue. Faith, desire, control, and accountability. So first of all, lust is defeatable through faith. Ephesians 6.16 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So right now in the pews, you could be lusting, and I wouldn't know it. While I'm preaching on lust, you could be lusting, and I wouldn't know it, but God does. So do you have enough faith to believe that God knows what is on your mind at all times? Do you have enough faith in God to believe that he sees you at all moments, that he is always there? One question you can ask yourself to understand whether or not you have this kind of faith is asking the question, do you pray in secret? Is that something you do? Do you ever pray in secret? Do you ever find yourself talking to God when no one else is around? And we'll get to a sermon on praying here in the near future in the Sermon on the Mount. But you should ask yourself that. It's a display of your faith. You have to have enough faith to believe that God knows what you're thinking. Two, lust is defeatable through desire. There has to be a desire greater than lust that overpowers lust. And it's weird to think about desire being a way to defeat lust because lust is a desire in itself, we would think. But there has to be a desire greater than lust that overpowers lust. And I'll give you an example. If someone tells you that you'll, they will give you a million dollars tomorrow if you go all day without watching pornography, then I bet you won't watch pornography that day. Why is that? Because your desire to have a million dollars tomorrow overcomes your desire to watch pornography tomorrow. And so, I would ask, how much do you desire to please God? You would, you would rather have a million dollars than watch pornography, but many times we would rather watch pornography than please God or do what God says or tells us to do. And the God who hung on the cross for adultery says, go and sin no more. Saving faith sees the cross and it bows in submission. So at the sight of the sacrifice of Jesus, you should want to submit yourself to him. You should want to please him. It is a fruit of the spirit for us, or the fruit of our faith in the spirit for us to want him, to want to please him, to have that kind of desire that overcomes lust and overcomes all these different sins in our lives. So, desire. And then thirdly, control. And we're familiar with this one in many ways. I argue, control what you expose yourself to. Romans 13, 13 through 14 says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It says make no provision for the flesh. In many ways, we make plenty of provision for the flesh, and you know what tempts you. Everyone here has been tempted or is tempted all the time, and you know what those things are. And many of us run to the temptation knowing where it's going to take you. I know I have in the past. What we need to do is we need to cut it off. We need to do whatever it takes. It's very serious, and he plainly puts it right here in the Bible, that we are to cut it off. We are to take this thing seriously and to do whatever it takes. And in controlling what you expose yourself to, I think you should also control your imagination. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, 
But if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Earlier I spoke of the way your imagination can change the way that you think for the worst. But your imagination can also change the way you think for the better. The things that you dwell on positively, the things of the kingdom, the things of Christ, the things that are godly, when you dwell on those things, it changes the way that you see everyone around you and see everything around you. So kill the sin in your mind and dwell on the things that are above. Look at the cross. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you will find whatever is true and honorable and lovely and just and commendable, and all excellence is there, and it's all worthy of praise. I hope you believe that. And when you look at the cross and when you bow in submission and you understand what Jesus has done for you, then these things, these lusts of the world, this worldliness is put aside whenever you look at the cross. And then one that we're really familiar with, point number four for how lust is defeatable, it's defeatable through accountability. We need to go to others and find accountability. Brothers, go to other brothers and seek accountability. Sisters, go to other sisters and get accountability. You need to do whatever it takes. You need to set up blocks, and you, may need, you, well, you definitely need to have serious talks with one another. You need to come to your brother or your sister, someone who you know you can trust, and you know, ask them or seek that they would ask you questions about whether, what you not, whether or not you've been lusting, you know, whether you, maybe if you've watched pornography or, or what you've been thinking about or how you've been doing in this sin. And you need to go up to someone that you are holding accountable and you need to ask them. You need to take initiative and, and think about going up to them and finding ways to go up to them and ask and actually make time for conversations like this where you're holding each other accountable. And as I give these four ways lust is defeatable, I want you to understand that no victory over lust is achieved in the absence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the strength that we need to overcome sin in our lives. God will provide the strength to overcome the temptation. That is, if you're active. If, um, if I'm trying to lift a barbell, I don't, need, well, I don't need the strength to lift a barbell if I'm going to be on the couch all day doing nothing. We need to be active in the war on lust, and then when we are active, God will give us the strength that we need to overcome it in the battle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Endure it. You catch that? It signifies trying. It signifies a struggle. But you will endure it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, are we going to war or are we going, or are we going to die? These are hard words, but we need them. Jesus knows that the disciples before him needed these hard words, and we today as a church need these hard words as well. I'm sure that Jesus is telling them this, his disciples this, because lust has probably become something that is normalized in the society. The culture around them has probably came in on them, has permeated the, the sin in the church. And Jesus is letting them know, reminding them that all sin is serious and that this lust is serious and it has to be something that is taken care of and it cannot 
be something that is among his people and his kingdom. And so, but thank God for his mercy that does not relent when his people are defeated. We may find ourselves defeated. And we will be defeated. But there's a difference between being defeated on purpose and and not trying and fighting and being defeated. I want you to know that. But whenever you're defeated in the battle, there is mercy. And God's mercy is greater than you can imagine. And it's one of the qualities of God that we should be so thankful for and that we should remember all the time. And it should bring us to tears. And so please let me, let me focus you in on the words, his people, his people receive mercy and his people also battle sin. So I hope that you are better equipped for the war on lust um, through the things that I've given you today. Um, and as for the sake of your soul and for the sake of God's glory, lust is deep, lust is deadly, and it is very defeatable. Don't forget that. So let us, as God's kingdom people, go to war. I'm going to pray. God, thank you so much for your mercy that cleans us of our sins, cleans us of the inward unrighteousness that is within us, and help us to have faith. Help us to have the faith that battles sin, the faith that trusts in you, and relies on you for all the strength that you will provide your people to overcome this. And I pray that we'll understand how serious it is. And I pray that we will do whatever it takes to cut it off. And that we will be a new united people who looks at our brothers and sisters in Christ, our daughters and sons of God. And that we will be more united in godliness. And we can move forward in fulfilling your commission and your purpose for our lives. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.